J.T. Crowley is talking books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and I'm pleased to bring you another exciting author, John Leslie Wheeler from Australia's Gold Coast, to talk about his epic book, Prayer is a Journey. John has been married for 59 years and has blessed with four children. Aside from his counselling and charity works, John worked in the legal profession as a solicitor, a lawyer. And I think it's fair to say that this eye-opening book of his has been compiled from his own conclusions, observations in life, and without a doubt, his inquiring mind to get to the facts so that he can draw on his own findings to back up his beliefs and thinkings rather than just accept the general ideology, what has been put out in the public domain over time. I think it's very fair to say that John Leslie Wheeler is no shrinking violet and he is a person who will go and do a lot of research to get his facts and to then develop his own conclusions. And this is where this book has come from, everybody. So let's invite John onto the show to talk about his book, Prayer is a Journey. John, come and join me. Thank you, John. You're very welcome. And as you've probably worked out, everybody, we both have the same name. So I feel at times we might be talking to myself, John and John, but I'm not, everybody. Believe you me. (laughs) Um. John, before we get into the book and, you know, to see what you've written and ask you questions around why you've written it, would you care to tell the the audience a little bit about yourself and why you wrote this book? It must have been on my mind from a young age because I went to a brother's school when I was in the fifth grade at about age 10 and they were telling me all the stories about Adam and Eve and the flood and I said, these stories are not correct. So I then got a Bible and said, I'll get into this myself and read this myself. And the first line, I think, in the Bible said, Adam is the first man, not was the first man. And I'm 10 years of age and I've gone into English syntax. And I said, there's something wrong there. Then I read a few other things. I said, I'm never going to understand this. So I put it to one side. Fast forward about 30 years and I was training in psychology to be a marriage counsellor. And also at that stage, involved heavily with church things. And then I started to see the parallels between psychology and the Bible. And that's when I started to put it all together. And I saw, I come to the conclusion that Adam and Eve are not real people. Adam and Eve are concepts. You you were once Adam, wife or something, if you have one, was once Eve. And the concept is... Somewhere in the the Old Testament, it says, Adam, God made us in the likeness, in his likeness and image. So likeness means we look like him, uh, or we are are like him, and image means we're not like Martians. So therefore, we had to be perfect because God's perfect. So that negates any such a sin as original sin because God doesn't have any sin in him. So uh, I think that's what that means. Somewhere it says, preserve the firstborn for God. And I think that means don't sin. 
the firstborn is Adam, if you're male, if you're female, and you preserve the Adam state or Eve state. They don't sin. Not as they do in Ireland, trundle the eldest child off to a seminary and turn them into religious priests when they should be traffic engineers or something. That was it. So, and a whole heap of things. Uh, I was top of the class in physics, and I, I find physics very easy. And uh, I, uh, I always was, was very knowledgeable about re- law of refraction of light. All right. And, and of course, it ref- light reflects through water, and that's when you get a rainbow. So God showed that uh, He's never going to destroy the world again with a rainbow. There's a problem with that. So there'd been water and rain around for five trillion years. So are we saying this is the first rainbow? Answer, no. So obviously that wasn't what it was meant. All the way through the Bible, God puts this in. He will say things which are apparently wrong, so you get to think. It's not the first. That wasn't the first rainbow. It wasn't the first rainbow ever. It's just nonsense. So, All right. And that's what God does. He, if you look at the whole Bible, you see, you see where he... He does this all the time. He, he puts things that, that don't make any sense. Uh, and like, if you if you eat of the tree of knowledge, you'll get into trouble. Uh, eating eating fruit off a tree is no problem at all. All right, let, let's, open up, the, let's open up the book, John, and let's see okay. what you've got to say here. John, I found your uh, opening lines in Prayer is a Journey quite profound. You talk about every soul on the planet is on a journey either to or away from God. And I get the impression that you've come to this conclusion via counselling sessions. I must admit, everybody, he is giving the counselling, not receiving it. And also that you've drawn upon um, your observations from general life. I also get the impression that you're a person who sees people for who they are and not what they are. So my question is, John, am I right in my conclusion? And does this book reflect you as a person so much so you've kick-started the book in this clever but very simplistic way? Yeah, that's my thoughts of it. I, I come to the conclusion that everyone thinks they're doing, doing the best they can, no matter how poor it is. They all think they're doing their best. You know? Al Capone probably thought he was a good guy. You'd, Money to the poor. So uh, uh, and it's only when you start to pray and ask God to show you, give you insight that you see that you are poor. I was very poor. I didn't see it. I said, God started to lean on me. And I said, what are you leaning on me for? And I don't. And then he showed me. <laughs> so now I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> so. um, I have to say, John, the chapter, When and Where Should We Pray?, struck an accord with me, for I have to admit that I, probably like a lot of people, only tend to pray when things have gone wrong in my life. And I probably think it's fair enough to say everybody else does the same virtually. You know, when some things have gone wrong in their lives, they pray. You know, or if they're worried about something, they tend to pray. Um, So, uh, you know, I shall say, you know, a casual indifferent approach, I love the opening gamut of this chapter. Um, And it's this, everybody. 
When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The number 27 in the end notes refers to Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And of course, this is Jesus referring to the scribes and the Pharisees who saw themselves as a cut above everyone else, praying and fasting in full view of the public saying, oh, look at us, Um, you know, so to speak. And our Lord is telling those that are around him, when you pray, go to a private room and pray secretly because the Lord knows what's in your heart. You do not need to go praying and fasting in public and, you know, attracting attention. That's not the way. Great. This, you know, is a very, very important chapter, John. And a lot of us will, will probably need to reflect on what you're saying here. You know, your viewpoints here. So do you think what you've said in this chapter and the viewpoints you've got here are relevant to today's modern world? No, John. Everyone must pray. You must live a prayer-filled life. When I started, after I made the Casillo, which is a renewal thing, I used to pray for seven minutes and read set prayers. Then I doubled that to 14, and I was still just gambling prayers. And then I decided to just pray without the written prayers. Uh, I went through, you see, I'm going through a sequence, and then I learned to listen to God when I was talking to God and just spend time and listen to him talk back to me. And then eventually I got to the stage where I used to just get ready to pray to God and wouldn't say anything. I'd just be present to God. Initially, and I'll tell you this, I've got this in the book, most of the time I thought about last night's football match because that's what your head's full of. If you're going to advance in prayer and advance in holiness, you must get the world out of your life. So I, I moved, removed myself from the world, all movies and parties and noisy functions and everything. So I just become a, it's just all trees were a babbler. That's her, her philosophy. And I did. And all of a sudden, I started to, things started to happen. It was like, it was like a magic carpet ride. It was really? a journey on a magic carpet. I felt like Aladdin. Yeah. I can't imagine you. I, I can't imagine you being Aladdin. No, it was, no, but it was. It was like it was like that. It was just. I prayed for two weeks and nothing happened, right? And then after two weeks, it started, and it started. It went on for fourteen years. Every day, is advancing, studying, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I finished up. I used to go to church every day. I said three rosaries every day. Uh, I prayed, I used to do a holy hour once a week, and there's a lot of benefit in that, I'll tell you. And, and so I was living a prayer-filled life. And as a result of that, at one stage, God said to me, you give me more than any person on the planet. And I said, what are you talking to me? I just thought a lot of people did it. But, uh, but you have to live a prayer-filled life to get the benefits. And you know, it's not it's not pray to God when you, things go bad. It's you pray every day to, become, to get a, a spirit of sonship. I'm God's, I'm God's instrument. I'm his son. He's going to do things for me. He's my father. And he's done a lot of things for me. I've done a lot of things. So, uh, And he does it all the time. He can have a, I, I spent, I've been in a meeting all day today, and he's spoken to me three times about super important things at the meeting, different things he told me, things to do, what to do, what not to do. And it's a very important deal. 
So uh, that's how I live my life. I got on my shoulder. A lot better than having the other bloke on your shoulder. Absolutely. So do you think, uh, John, because um, you've, you've got a chapter here, you know, listening to God in prayer. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's very fair that a lot of us don't listen. We we do an awful lot of asking, but we don't listen. Yeah. You must um, listen, John. And when we're supposedly listening, are we actually listening to God answering us, or is it our own voice talking backwards, back to us, telling us what we want to hear as a response? In this chapter, you talk about having to learn to differentiate between God and yourself. You mentioned St. Teresa of Avila, water in a bowl, the voice of God does not talk in perfectly grammatical sentences. You talk about if God didn't respond to your prayer and questions, you would go and search religiously. You go and research religious books, go and search for an answer to satisfy your own thirst. Nowadays, I suppose we'd go on the internet or we'd go and ask Alexa on the smart devices for the answer. So this chapter is, is quite an eye-opening chapter, everybody. And it's packed with full of useful tips. So my question is, John, is listening to God important to you? And is it equally important for you to tell others in this chapter that it's vital we listen as well as ask? Okay. It's absolutely critical that you listen to God. And God doesn't talk to you like a voice. God talks to you like a concept, an idea that just comes to you. Uh, if that voice is either your own ambition or maybe somebody else, but it's not like God. God appears to you, well, answers you as a concept. You've asked, isn't capable of being answered in that way. You then go about your business and a strange thing happens. And that is this. If you have asked God for something, the first voice you hear on the subject, any person, is from God. And the second from the other bloke. And this is Catherine of Siena says this. Uh, John of the Cross says this, faith depends on hearing. And we must remember that Moses never saw the promised land because he struck the rock twice. He asked God twice or he, he didn't take notice of the first voice. He only took the second. And Moses, a very holy man, probably more holy than me, and us. And he just never saw, never saw the promised land. So God... God wants you to listen and understand that it's him talking and believe. You've got to believe. So that's why I tell people it's it's important to listen in prayer, to understand the three three or four things, the concept that comes, not a voice, uh, people that talk to you out in the environment or something you've read, or you go and read something. Mm. <clears throat> There's all sorts of all sorts of methods. Um, one of the things when I was beginning, you know, when I was beginning, I had to learn, God would talk to me through signs. You know, stop if I was talking, stop, do, do this or whatever. And I'd get a, a sense of uh, the words being emboldened. So it was a message to me. It doesn't happen now because I know a bit more about it. But uh, all those things are relevant to understanding when God's talking, how to listen to God in prayer. And if you do that, you can advance. And, and the critical one is the second voice is from the other fellow. If you don't, if you don't listen, I'll tell you, you'll pay a price. Anyway, <laughs> and that's Catherine of Siena, I think it is, and John of the Cross. He's the master. 
master spiritual author of any I've ever read in my life. And he says that faith depends on hearing. Right. Um, so faith depends on hearing. It does. Whether God's alive or he's not. I know. <laughs> um, it's um, That's up to people to make their own opinions on that. Um, John, do you think trusting God is vital to, you know, having, you know, maintaining a healthy relationship with him? Yeah. Teresa of Avila says, and without most respect, I agree, that it's God who controls our understanding. Your will is free. If I say to you, touch your nose, you can touch your nose. But if, if I say to you, understand a certain thing, you mightn't understand. It's God control. That's how God controls the world. He controls our understanding. So having a relationship with God and knowing that he's controlling us is absolutely essential to know the rules that listen when he's talking to us. That's what people don't understand. Therese Lovabla is one of three female doctors in the church. She's about 34, and there's three females. She's one of them, and that's her big thing in life. There's a, God controls our, us by controlling our understanding. So it's essential to learn all these things to plug into God. You can have some big wins, I'll tell you. Yeah. Big wins. So, so trust is important. So that's why you put a chapter in here around trust. You know? So in the chapter yeah. on trust, you talk about uh, as time evolved, um, you know, you you personally didn't need to know the future and that you needed to contend, you know, be content with yourself as to, you know, with your daily troubles and how to go about them and how to handle them. And... Mm. You know, because as a lawyer, you must have dealt with some very, very tricky cases. Um, so I think you put your hands in the Lord's trust to get you through the day. And this is where I think this chapter comes from. You mentioned mm -hmm. God appearing to Joseph in a dream, Mary, Mary, and in, you know, watch out for Herod. Um, this was Joseph putting his trust in God. And you refer codes here, you know, the range is from 31 to 38. So you, you've already said here, uh, St. John of the Cross, Matthew 6.34. Again, quite a few Matthew um, scriptural passages, 1.20, 2.13, Deuteronomy and Luke. There's a lot of uh, backing up to what you're trying to get across here, isn't there, in this chapter here with these scriptural passages? Yeah. So why have you well, set this chapter out, Ms. Basham? Why have you set this chapter out? I'm trying to give the references so that it's not John Wheeler that's saying this. There's the scriptural references to what I'm saying. I'm just highlighting what the scripture says, that's all. So I, I spent the hours reading it. The average person reading this book won't spend the time. At least they can look at the, look at the footnotes and look it up if they're that way inclined. And what I found very intriguing in the book, if you get the Kindle version, everybody, if you actually click on the number, it takes you to the scriptural passage. It, it highlights it for you. So you don't have to go to the end notes. But when you do get to the end notes, you do have to go and get the Bible and open it up. I did. Mm -hmm. And you'll see why he's picked these references, these scriptural passages. Mm -hmm. They are very, very mm -hmm. significant and poignant. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the chapter, Prayer for Our Enemies. Now, I wanted to talk about this because I think it's so important to everybody. And I myself, I'm probably speaking on, you know, for a lot of people, praying for our enemies is very, very hard. Um, 
It is. It is. Um, you know, you start the chapter by saying that in addition to praying for your friends, you need to pray for your enemies. And some people have said to you, what, pray for something bad to happen to them? And you have come back to them saying, no, not that, that you, you know, you should pray for them that they can see the error of their ways, you know, their, their errors, their ill judgments. And you've got the biblical reference, you know, to number 50 here, Romans 12, 20, Proverbs 25, 22. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. My question here, John, is, do you think with all that's going on in the world today that the chapter you've written here is poignant as it was back in our Lord's time? And maybe we should pay more attention to this area in our lives and look more deeply into what you're advocating here. What do you say there? If you don't, you'll you'll incur you'll incur penalties. Uh, God God wants peace. He doesn't want he doesn't want people fighting and carrying on. You know, if you've got to remember all the things that nasty things people have done to you, you spend half your life carrying a, a glossary around in your head. The easiest way is just to pray for it, and they will change. Or the situation will change. God will do something. He does all sorts of things, some of which I don't want to mention. Um, uh, and if the people do this, they can then come to the understanding of what this means. God doesn't want you fighting, except defending the kingdom or whatever. But uh, he doesn't want you fighting with your next door neighbor, you know, hugging about the trees fall over the fences. I'm going to sort the blessed thing out without... without uh, without getting into halts and starting a war, you know. Uh, but I've had... I've, Do you find it easy or hard to pray for your enemies? I find it easy because of that thing I said, it's God who controls the world. God has brought them against you to teach you something or whatever. So it's not much use you rebelling against God. God's allowed that because of that thing that Teresa Rella uh, and you just uh, roll with the punches, just pray for them. And then amazing things will happen. I can assure you, I'll give you a written guarantee. Amazing things will happen. Amazing. You can send me a Christmas card. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. When I look, uh, you know, in the book, you know, at the contents of the, um, there's a chapter here, everybody, uh, on prayer for writing injustices in the environment. And I was very intrigued by this chapter, everybody, um, because I was intrigued as to how, John, you started off the chapter uh, with you telling us how you prayed the rosary every night with your family. And I immediately thought of the saying, the family that prays together stays together. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. It, it's true. It's very, very true, everybody. Mm-hmm. You talk about, you know, as a legal profession, you saw many unjust laws passed leading to social problems and that you prayed these laws would be rectified. Um, you quote, you refer here, you know, the scriptural passages to Matthew chapter nine, 18, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. So I'm thinking, what, if anything, in this brief chapter 
would the reader gain from reading here? And why did you choose Matthew chapter 18, verse 19? Okay. It, it has a very simple origin, John. When we were praying the rosary and the, when we'd finished, I'd say to the kids, we go, everyone's got to have a prayer. And people, the kids would pray for things that kids pray for. And I, I, they, they, <laughs> we live on the water. We did. And the speed limit for boats was six horsepower, and I bought them a boat at eight horsepower. So I'm probably teaching them to be a little bit like their father. So we prayed that the law be changed, and it was changed. So, and then other things, there was other laws. I was, I was making them pray, you see, and the laws would change. Whatever they prayed for, the laws would change. I was teaching them the power of prayer. That's how that all came about. It was just a, an adjunct to the rosary um, for the family to do. And as for family staying together, uh, that was probably 40 years ago. They still go to family functions and everyone greets each other like old friends. I went to one on the weekend and, and people have commented on the, on how the family is united, and it's all to do with the rosary. And I always thought the family that prays together stays together was the husband and wife, but it's not. It's the family. The family is united. You know? They've got kids and grandkids and great-grandkids now, and uh, and they all everyone talks about how they interact when they get together. It's just, it's just, just amazing. They all respect each other. They're friends with each other, et cetera, et cetera. I, I sit back and I know what it is. It's the rosary. The rosary. Barry P.O. says the, so would the you rosary also, is the weapon. Yeah, would you also say, you know, the family, let's broaden the family, you know, the church family, you know, praying together, staying together. That's important as well, isn't it? The broader community. Yeah. Well, all these things are intertwined. You know, mm. prayer and staying together, prayer, forgiving enemies and all that. It's all one thing. It's all its all living a, a spiritual life. That's what it means to be a spiritual person. Live live the Bible. You see, I, somewhere or other you said to me or you wrote to me, say, I always thank God and his word. You said this, I, I act on it. I've always been that way. I probably did it with people in my life, but. I did it to God. You say that, and let's let's go. Let's give it a let's give it a run. And he was there all the time. Yeah, I probably was a bit more flippant than most people, but, but uh, that's but he just was you. There. Never, absolutely. Never, can't remember where he's <laughs> left me high and dry ever. I just told you, today. I was at that meeting today. That three times he spoke to me about this very important meeting, and he said to me, "This, this, this, this. Watch out for this. Do this and this." I'm just sitting. There. People don't even know what I'm doing, what I'm seeing. That's what you've got to do. God's your friend. He wants to be your father. If I was your father and you asked me for something, I'd give it to you. Yeah. I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to give it to that John. He's no good. I'd give it to you. <laughs> it's always just good for you. If you want $100 million or something, I might give that to you. That might, might cause you a problem. Yeah. It does. But that's it. My father wants to reward you. Yeah. Anyway. Give you health, health, you health. You pray for health. It's all over the Bible. You pray and God heals you. I've healed myself three or four times. My wife three or four times. I healed a woman with macular degeneration about eighteen months ago. She was sitting in the church pew in front of me, and I knew she was going blind. 
and the reading that day was old men, the old church members should look after the young ones. So I got her outside. As I started to talk to about praying for her, she was healed. Uh-huh. The macular generation, she was going blind. So uh, wow. getting God to heal, getting God to heal is so simple. You just ask. But you've, also got, but you've also got to listen. Well, you can ask. You ask. You pray believing. You don't have to ask ten times. Yeah. I, anyway. I, I'm not going to go too much into this, but I just got some thing from, from the jab, which was a, a really bad health thing. And I said to God, that's not much fun. He said, I'll heal you. I said, okay, heal me. Boom, that was it. No. So I'm going to the hospital in end of January, end of December. To see if God was there, so but who knows? I'd like to know. Send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it does. Joe, <laughs> so when I look at the chapter working in the garden, I get the sense that you wrote this chapter uh, for it's about you and your wife's work within not necessarily the garden, but in the Lord's garden. You know, we're talking metaphorically here, everybody. You both came from broken homes, and for me, you're right. Um, you know, for a fulfilled Christian life, you have to carry out, uh, you know, you've got to back up your prayers with physical, um, you know, work, actually do things as well, you know. Um, and for you, you chose, and your wife, you chose the uh, marriage guidance counseling. You know, when you looked at the church organizations and charities, you chose this route. And mm-hmm. I also get the feeling that. When you've you and your wife looked at this council and you talk to people, um, you've learned so much yourselves and you've benefited just as much. So, would you like to share with us how important the type of work you and your wife chose? Um, and do you think God rewards us, you know, both personally and financially for doing good deeds? And why the story of the infant of Prague? Hmm. Oh, well, I've had a statue of the infant of Prague all my life. I know where it's come from, and the story behind them is, you know, you you uh, you pray to the infant, you you give the infant back his hands, and then he will, which is God given asking you to give give him your hands, and then he'll do things for you. But everyone's got to work in the environment where they see. Like we both come from broken homes and we were sensitive to it, and that's why we got into counselling. But she set up a thing called Pregnancy Help for young girls who got into strife. She ran that. I set up the Big Brothers thing, which is one of the biggest organisations in America. I set up the one in Australia, and I was president for 14 years, and I ran that. Uh, I was on all sorts of church committees and, and finance committees and different things. Uh, being a marriage counsellor teaches you psychology and most importantly teaches you communication. Now, I can hear people talk and I can read what's in their heart by just listening to them. And that comes from communication and counselling. And in business, that's an awesome advantage. You can read, person be saying one thing and you can read what's in their hearts the opposite, you know. So that's what that's all. All those things are a benefit that God gives you. You know, I don't know. I can't think of anything else I might have done, but anything else I might have done, it still rewards you. He rewards you. A lot of time I was counselling myself because I come from a broken home. I was brought up by my mother. She was struggled with a lot of things. 
And uh, half the time I was counselling myself and I'd be sitting there watching the person. I'm counselling them and I'm saying, that's me. And I can see the the weakness in me or the thing that needed to be healed. And I'm getting healing, counselling the person. And one time, this happened to my wife and I, we were in the one time of same week, I was counselling this couple and the words were forming off my lips without going through my mind. God was speaking directly through me and not through my brain. And it was very unnerving. When I'm like a puppet. <laughs> and I told my wife, she said, that happened to me. It was happening to her. So God's showing us that he's talking through us to the council, to the clients. But uh, but he just did that to show us. And that's what's going on. I am controlling your brain. Mm-hmm. So you've talked to the people, but and he did that. So I've had a lot of experiences, I'll tell you. Oh, a lot. So that's, that's one. Let's go, uh, John, to um, the last chapter we're going to talk about because we are getting towards the end of the book, everybody. Mm-hmm. The life journey. Um, you know, this is, you know, there's a, you know, we are getting towards the end of the book and yet you are still packing punches here, John, with lots and lots of, um, thought-provoking viewpoints. You you talk about here, John, you know, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah's Ark, Moses and the Tablets of Stone, Night of Spirit, the Garden of Eden, Nakedness, Adam and Eve, Core Freedom, Teenage Strengths. The list is endless. It goes on and on here. Um, You really are doing the rounds here, John, but... Why have you styled this chapter in this manner? I think because that's a summation mm. of the various thoughts that I've had on those various subjects. Bear in mind, physics was my top subject at school, so therefore there never was a flood because rain comes from steam taking up the water from the earth up there and it comes back down. So therefore, Mount Everest is five miles high so it must have been covered with water before it went up. So what goes up comes down. Secondly, the ark was 450 feet long or 550, depending on. Timber loses its structural strength over 300 feet. Somebody in America built an ark. They spent $20 million. But they all went out to sea. The boat collapsed in the, in the ocean and they all drowned. So never was an ark. Moses... I can't get any information on how many animals there were at the time, but some, some students or some authorities say 20 million, some say 2 million, but it doesn't matter. It's a stack, a stack of people. Uh, how did he know? He's a simple soul. How did he know what animals to collect? How did, how did the ark get across the ocean? You know, what's the name? Mercedes Benz weren't there for a few more years yet. How did he get up the Amazon River? It's 3,000 miles long and he went up against the current. How did he get up there? Huh? There's no sails. No. It's not. It's only, It's a myth. The ark is what happens to the spiritual person when you decide you're going to live a spiritual life and, and, and stay and do these things that God's talking about and you're there and the rain come and everything else and you're protected. And most importantly, and you'd have a little laugh with this, in order for you to survive, God brings the animals to you two by two. So that's how you make your living. He brings the animals to you. I just said, I think it's another set. 
<laughs> what does solicitors call them clients? But <laughs> and court court freedom is very complicated. You'd need to I forget his name now that he's a priest in uh, university in America. He's written a, a book on court freedom. Uh, uh, that's that I think is what happens. A person doesn't achieve core freedom till they're twenty-one. You don't get free free control of the will. What was the other one you mentioned? Nakedness and Adam and Eve. Okay. Well, Adam and Eve, Adam, Adam and Eve are con- are the concepts of yourself. You 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 have been Adam. You know you mightn't be Adam now, but you you were Adam, and you were given an opportunity to preserve Adam, preserve your Adam state. Not only go into your life. Uh, and maybe he kept it all the time. I don't know. Eve, the same. Eve had the same opportunity. So, so uh, uh, nakedness has nothing to do with having clothes. Nakedness is self strength. Is strength inner strength. As soon as you sin, as soon as one sins, um, you lose inner strength, and you become naked. You don't have the when I was young, I was so strong. I was like Samson. As a matter of fact, I, I called my <laughs> wife Delilah. She gave me that. But I was Samson. I was as strong as a bull. I was so strong as the strongest person I knew. Uh, so then I finished up. Uh, I didn't have that strength for various reasons. And uh, so then I, I become naked inside. My, my strength had gone. There you go. Don't want to go too much into that. Don't want to go too yeah. much into that. Yeah. So this chapter really is it's a summary of what he's written uh, in the chapters previous. Yeah, it's all, they're all allegories. There you go. Um, what's next for you, you know, uh, John, in terms of you know writing? Any more books coming down the line, or has this exhausted you? This one? No, I was going to write. I was going to write a book on my life because. As you can no doubt guess, my life's been very adventurous, far beyond the average person. You can't believe the things that have happened to me. Um, I'm going to I'm going to halfway finished, uh, and I'll fin- I'll finish it up. Even if people don't want to buy it, I'll still give it to the grandkids because I taught my children. My father's a professional gambler, and of course, I learned a lot of things around that environment. But I wouldn't let my kids play snooker, play cards, go to the races. They don't know which end of the horse feeds. I brought them all up to be sportsmen. They still don't know. They still don't know which end of the horse you feed. So, uh, but I didn't. I, I came a different route. So, uh, uh, and the adventures were adventures. Uh-huh. And, and so I've, had, I've had adventures that no one would believe. That my my other book is called You Wouldn't Believe It. Because you wouldn't believe the things that have happened to me. You wouldn't believe. Anyway, so, so that's it. Let's see if he actually does write that book, everybody. Uh, John, where can people get your books from? I sent you the, I sent you the links. Um, yeah. Did you get those? Yes. You did? Well, there's a there's a webpage called prayerisajourney.com. But are you? Not .com, but are you? Amazon. There's a link I sent you for, from Balboa Press about how to buy the, buy the book. And Amazon, everybody. Hmm? And Amazon, everybody. 
So I have to say, John, it's been a fascinating uh, journey with you to, you know, I've been looking at your book, reviewing your book. I've learned quite a lot. And I think people, you know, when they go and buy it, will will equally buy, uh, will equally learn quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. So all I say to you folks is it's been a very interesting and an eye-opening interview. And I simply say go and buy the book. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you, John. I'm you come down to Australia, uh, no. look me up. I'll be delighted to catch <laughs> all, up with you. All the way in from good old sir, from the United Kingdom to Australia, this interview has been done. So I'm JT Crowley. Yeah. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you're in the world. Till next time, stay safe.